Hi everyone, welcome to Cosmic, human beings on planet Earth trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. It feels like it's time to launch season 2. I was initially planning to produce another episode of Summer Reflections, but some of the things I wanted to cover are not completely ready, so we'll take it later and instead jump right in. There is uh, one interview that I produced before the summer that I kept in the drawer because I knew it would fit perfectly the, the launch of season two. As a quick reminder, in season two and on, we are going to increase our focus on uh, paradigm shift beyond just change making. And shifting the paradigm starts by changing the language we use and the stories we tell as change makers. So we talked about language and, and stories a few times already in season one. Um, the very first episode of Cosmic actually started with the power of stories where Brian Fitzgerald helped us shape um, an understanding of how much they matter. And uh, later on in Cosmic 23, a street artist Coolcore showed us that those who control language control the world around us. More recently, in Cosmic 32, I had a chance to dig deeper into languages and cultures with anthropologist and explorer Wade Davis and what ethnocide means for the future of our human uh, societies. So looking towards paradigm shift now, it became clear to many of us that change starts with change of the stories we tell and the language we use to steer human energy, right? In this episode, I'm talking to Alno Lada, who gives us some of the keys to narrative change, culture hacking and harnessing the power of language for paradigm shift. He's the executive director of The Rules, a global network of activists, writers, researchers, artists, designers, hackers, and others focused on addressing the root causes of poverty, inequality, and climate change. This is Cosmic Season 2. Thank you for being here. Enjoy the show. Besides me is Arno Lada, Executive Director of The Rules. Hello, Arno. Hello. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about the power of language. We're going to talk about the, the structures we're trapped into. Um, but maybe before you can introduce a little bit your, your focus, where you're coming from, and your interests in, in that whole discussion. Sure. So I'm part of an organization called The Rules. And it's a, a global collective of activists, writers, researchers, coders, and others focused on addressing the root causes of inequality, poverty, and climate change, you know, i.e. The, the neoliberal system. Hmm. Yeah. And so the, the question of what, what's the... the the nature of my interest or the nature of my inquiry in answering this question, um, it, it of course comes from the rules and it also started before that and, and goes beyond that. And um, from, a, from a rules perspective, what we try to do is uh, we try to bring more progressive ideas and alternatives into the mainstream and make them feel like common sense oh, wow. using... Uh, narrative intervention work. Narrative so, intervention work. Yeah. So what does that look like typically? Think of it as more cultural campaigning rather than traditional campaigning, right? Mm. Traditional campaigning has a bad guy. There's a policy. The aim is to change that policy and uh, that usually that target 
plays a role, whether that's a government official or, or a corporation or whatever, you get them to change their behavior. Right. And cultural campaigning or narrative campaigning is much more about changing the context that the story exists in. So we don't necessarily engage with the target in a way that we expect a response or we want them to, you know, we don't make them the all-powerful decision maker. We change the narrative environment in which the battle is happening. So they either have to succumb or um, deal with the consequences. Right. What's the kind of outcomes that you're, that you're looking for when you monitor your work? You know, it really depends. Um, you know, I don't believe in, in metrics in a linear sense. And because we don't do campaigning in, a, in the traditional way, there aren't things like, uh, did you get a policy change? Or, and, and also, I feel like this sort of cause and effect linearity is part of the Western NGO industrial complex. And the nature of narratives is such that it is nonlinear. It is, right. um, it, you know, the thing with memetics. So memes are like the cultural equivalent of genes. And when you try to follow the biography of a meme or the biography of an idea, you realize that it's very messy, involuted process. Mm. How one idea gets uh, transferred from one human mind to another or to a collective is, it's, you know, more art than science and probably both simultaneously. And so, you know, a part of it is what what is the 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 narrative discourse now, and what's the shift? What happens after the campaign? Uh, how many people are talking about these issues and thinking about these issues, and what language are they using to talk about those issues? And so, you know, just to give you an example on on something like um, universal basic income, right? right. So there's this idea that you know everyone in the world should get a certain amount of money for just by dint of being a citizen on, on planet Earth. And it's an interesting idea for lots of reasons. Um, and the left and the right tend to agree on this idea, right? Mm -hmm. And for the left, they want to bring back the welfare state and have you know the basic safety net in place. And for the right, they, for them, it's this libertarian idea of let people decide and cut social spending and let's give people some piddling amount. Right. <laughs> you know? and, and so in an intervention like that, it's actually really easy to understand the landscape. You, you essentially, you know, you could pull all the, the, the Twitter sphere data, who's controlling the conversation, who's got the most tweets, retweets, who are the key organizations. You could do that from an academic perspective. Who's written the most papers, who's got the most citations and recitations, etc. You can do that from a general media perspective. You know, you use the LexisNexis media database or whatever, and you just see like who's got the most articles, who's in the New York Times the most, who's the most cited, all of right. that. And then you essentially pull from that what's being said now. And then there's a subjective layer, which is this more cognitive linguistic overlay, you know, which is thinking about how uh, language rests in the mind and wh what change and shift in language do you want. And a simple way to think about this is from a values perspective. So in the world of values research, there's a, what they call the circumplex. And you have these kind of extrinsic values that are outside of you, status, money, power, wealth. It's essentially the values of capitalism and the values that capitalism, the dominant culture, espouses. And then you have internal, intrinsic values, they call them, right. which are more altruism, generosity, solidarity, empathy, etc., interdependence. And, uh, you know, the aim of what we do at The Rules is try to push these narratives into uh, areas of, of more intrinsic values. Uh, more sort of human-based values. So the conversation is not just one about policy. It is not just one about me versus him or whatever. Right. It's one that sort of shifts the discourse. So if you take something like UBI, the broader frame that we try to bring into these discussions is actually basic income gives us a chance to rethink our relationship with work and bullshit jobs and frees us uh, so a lot of people will say, well, a basic income would make you lazy. And actually what we know is uh, when people are freed from having to keep body and soul together, they do the things they actually want to do. That's why in jail, one of the first, the most demanded things is work, right. you know, even if they're not paid for it. And so uh, it's also shifting our perspective of human beings. We're not 
lazy and selfish and small-minded. We're highly contextual beings. In the right context, we can be anything. Yeah. And so part of the, the narrative strategy is how do you change the narrative environment and how do we, from a political, structural perspective, change the context to show what we could be if given these opportunities? So the narrative around UBI is very much, this will help create a spiritual creative renaissance on this planet. talking about universal basic income and, and what would a potential narrative intervention in a space like that look like and, and how do we expand the values from extrinsic ideas of money and income and to more intrinsic ideas. There's also another reason this idea of language and the power it holds is, is so important, especially in the times we live in. We talked a bit about memetics, which is the, the study of memes, the study of uh, ideas and how they are transferred from one person to another and from communities to communities. And there is also like an esoteric layer to this that goes beyond, uh, you know, the work I may do in a formal capacity, but there, there's an understanding around neoplatonic ideas that, that informs this work. And so, you know, Plato said that the world of the formless in some ways is more real than the world of form physical form mm. and so this world of form this world of ideas are are, um, are sui generis they exist in, in their own sense so if you think of the perfect circle for example in your, in your head that idea of the perfect circle exists before any physical circle or sphere or object that is derivative of that idea. And so there is this sort of um, battle of ideas, you know, and, and in some ways you could say that the kind of Christian mythopoetic narrative comes from the idea of the two initial thought forms being good versus evil or dark versus light, right. as do many dualistic traditions. And so these thought forms in some ways are alive, you know, and, and they are animate. And so I think what we're, what we fail to understand as, uh, as uh, uh, practitioners of language is on, on one level how um, language betrays our internal values as a civilization. So we're often mimicking language that we don't even necessarily believe in but mm. it is the sort of you know, cultural uh, magnet, magnet yeah. right? And so, so there's, there's that aspect. Th then there is the aspect of language that actually betrays our true values. Um, and there's also the esoteric magical aspect, which is we are casting spells with this language. We're essentially praying to living deities. So when we say things like, you know, greed is good, 
these, these are not just mere ideas. These, these are uh, mimetic altars we're erecting in the honor of these ideas. And so that aspect is also critically important. And it's in some ways something that um, regressive movements, uh, right-wing movements, um, ha have, uh, you know, authoritarian regimes of all kinds have always understood, you know, and, and of course Orwell was, was one of the, the kind of consummate uh, decoders of this, right? That, that all power rests in language and language is created in the mind and language is um, expanded, amplified, contaminated in social, cultural contexts. Mm. And so it's happening to us all the time. And so part of the, the, the task of you know, people who are... Uh, maybe awake is too strong of a word, but, but in the, the path of awakening, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, is, is to be a student of language and to be a student of our culture and decode it, but also to recode it, to hack the culture itself, to uh, better express the values that this next generation lives for. Mm. How do you build that culture and that knowledge within your network? You're, you call yourself like a, a network? Or, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, at some point, you decided to have um, a structure uh, that would sort of farm and host that, uh, that vision. How do you uh, become a magnet for other people who understand this? What's a little bit of the, the history of your, of your network and some of, the, um, some of the challenges, maybe, that you, mm -hmm. you've been meeting so far? So uh, we were born in early 2011. A few of us uh, came together who had an interest in these issues. Actually, many of us initially came from the world of, I would say, development with quotes, you know, yeah. quote unquote development, um, which is, you know, the world of poverty alleviation. And, and for example, Martin Kirk, who's the co-founder of The Rules, was the head of campaigns at Oxfam. So he was in the traditional NGO development complex and, and also started seeing, and, and I'll just give his story because the, the few of us who came together at the time um, had similar stories and similar journeys where, where um, he would see, for example, in, in that organization, the idea of uh, poverty requiring charity. So you would see these... The, the you know outward expression of Oxfam's work is poor black children with flies in their eyes that need your donation, right? right? And what that does, and if you do the research as, as he did, is from a from a sort of framing perspective, you're actually reinforcing the the sort of charity, sympathy, pity divide. You're creating the other. Right. And from a movement building perspective, what you're doing is you're creating short term blips in. Uh, empathy that yeah. come with some money and then a long-term degradation of the movement because people are like well I already gave my dollar a day why right, isn't this right. thing going away whereas when you treat people as if they're intelligent and you say instead of the you know old Bono um, one line of you know po uh, um, make poverty history to, to talk about like history makes poverty Right. You know, and then to talk about actually how we got to this place and treat people as if they're intelligent because no amount of money is going to solve the problem of poverty. It's hardwired into the logic and the rules of our economy. And so when we started, we said, okay, how do we deconstruct that? Mm. And, and how do we start uh, talking about these issues in that way? That these, uh, and, and then it is sort of expanded to you know, all of the major issues of our time because they're all so interconnected, right? There is, even the idea of... of these issue silos, which the NGO industrial complex tries, uh, in some ways has to perform within, mm -hmm. um, is not actually conducive to the true nature and complexity of the problems we face and the poly crisis we face as a civilization. Mm. Right.
remember that? Yeah. I remember you and me. Close as any two can be. Now we're strangers in the night. Awkward in the tight. Oh, baby, do you wanna make it better? Uh, do you wanna stay together? came to those realizations as a collective of, of, of founders and and how, how did you go from there what was the the original debate on, on the on the how or what are the, the modes of operation that you can poss possibly deploy yeah you know we, we started informally for the first year and then um, occupy happened in September 2011 and uh, I was living in New York and a few of us were living in New York at the time and then that really shifted our thinking as, uh, as well I think initially we thought we would bring this cognitive linguistic um, mimetic overlay into traditional campaigning work. And then we saw the power and, and the peril of decentralized bottom-up organizing and um, how difficult it was and also how impactful and pertinent and important it was. And then all the movements that were happening simultaneously around the world, um, the Indignados and Arab Spring and umbrella movement shortly after you know, pro-democracy movements of India and Brazil and Russia and all, all of this was kind of happening at the same time and um, we just we decided as a group that we couldn't work informally that uh, we, we actually needed to free ourselves from other work and, and, and this is the, the kind of you know the irony of, of, of being post-capitalist right and, and anti-capitalist in like the height of late stage capitalism right? right and and so and we're all you know in contradiction and we're all in the messiness of it and so we decided okay we're going to set up a 501c3 not for profit us based not for profit and raise money from progressive foundations and but we would only do it for a period of time you know so we decided to to close the rules initially 10 years from when we started and and then a few years ago we moved it to eight years So why, why, why did you why did you set a time limitation like this? What was the incentive? Lots of things. You know, I, I think it was a confluence of maybe four factors. You know, one is that we have no idea what the future holds, and uh, we're in such an exponential time that to create an organization that would exist indefinitely um, feels irresponsible. Right. Actually. That was the first. You know, the second was really allowing new configurations to emerge, and uh, and evolve, and and you know, come out of the organization. Because if you're st stuck and set on a structure, um, you're limited by that structure. Mm. And in the world of NGOs, what that means is that you're fundraising in perpetuity. You, you, be, you start to be part of the job creation industry, you know, and, and it's the opposite of what we wanted to do. And, and we all have a critique of the, the, the charitable industrial complex. We, we all came from a place where, like, that's not what we wanted to do, but we also see the value in the tool. And so what it allows you to do if, you're, if you have a short-term organization is that you can take more risk. You're not in this business of continually expanding and growing and mimicking the logic of capitalism. Rather, you're mimicking the logic of degrowth, which is one of the alternatives we believe in to the, the existing capitalist paradigm. Right. We're going to talk about it. So you decide that the organization is going to close in, what, 20... It closes at the end of this year. It'll at close the end, at the end of this year. Yeah. Oh, and from there, 
you start reaching out to potential allies or how did you get no, to the we, point we, where it's a network? We, we, we had a core group uh, that, that sort of grew over the first period of time um, that was a mix of policy, people, strategy, technology, design, linguistic uh, uh, frames, analysts, and, and others. There was probably 30 or 40 of us working informally uh, and then three, four, five people within the, the sort of core group. And we, we decided as a group that one of the first issue areas we wanted to hack was the idea of tax justice. Hmm. Um, because many of us came from the development sector and there was all this rhetoric around, we need to increase development aid funding. And it's like, well, actually all aid to the global south is about $120 billion. And just in tax evasion alone, the global south loses a trillion dollars a year, like 10 times aid. And for you know, people like Bill Gates who are working uh, in, in the quote-unquote development sector, pushing this agenda of increasing development, it's like, on the other side, you're using Microsoft money to lobby for regressive tax laws that allow Microsoft to not pay tax because Microsoft outside of the US by and large doesn't pay tax. Right. And so really exposing that, that you know, we want to blame these tin pot dictators in the global south, and of course they're abhorrent, but the corruption is created and enabled by the global north, you know, specifically the city of London corporation, uh, which is housed within London itself. Uh, about 60% of the world's trade flows through the City of London Corporation. All the world's tax havens are backed by the Queen through the Crown dependencies. And really just using that narrative of, uh, instead of trying to treat the Global South as a recipient of your donation, uh, is to see that the North is actually the creator and enabler of corruption through, through greed and through a form of neocolonialism. And, and turning these, upturning these uh, development narratives was, was the, the start of the journey and and you know soon after people would just come to us because in like that that campaign was not a traditional campaign in any way you know we crowdsourced 70 or 80 billboards surrounding the city of London right we, because I, what I was going to say is that you infiltrate uh, culture with those narratives essentially right. like right, right. just yeah. to explain a little bit the, yeah know. so so what we did we, we and it comes from a place of deep research you know so we, we we researched how development talks about charity and what was actually happening with tax justice and then we helped popularize some of the the research around tax justice that was coming out of places like tax justice network and and other uh, uh, organizations at the time and then uh, doing our own analysis, social, political, cognitive analysis on what would be the stickiest language. And it, you know, most people don't know about the city of London. So we just renamed it the tax haven capital of the world and um, kind of used like 1920s tourism visit posters and crowdfunded uh, about 70, 80 posters surrounding the square mile, which is a very tiny area. And then organized um, a kind of event in front of the Lord Mayor's house. So the Lord Mayor is not the mayor of London. It's a separate Lord Mayor just for the city of London, uh, who's essentially like the, um, he over, he, he's like the, the Vatican, he's like the Pope of the Vatican of wealth extraction. That's kind of his job, to create more tax havens around the world. And we did a campaign that was following the Lord Mayor around and seeing how everywhere he went, there was neoliberal reforms and reduction in tax for the 1% and an increase in tax for poor people. Uh, and the creation of all these sort of special economic zones, uh, which is a big part of their 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 play. So we, we we worked with Occupy in London and sort of made one of the major demand demands of the time, which was to remove the city of London from the freedom of information exemption. So it was the only kind oh, wow. of public entity that was exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. And so there was a policy aspect, a cultural aspect. Uh, a, a huge news media blitz aspect and all of a sudden people started talking about the city of London as it was the tax haven capital of the world. Right, right. So, check. <laughs> yeah. Baby, don't make me spell it out for you All of the feelings that I got for you can't be explained, but I can try for you. Yeah, baby, don't make me spell it out for you. 
You keep on asking me the same questions. Why? And second guessing all my intentions. Should know by the way I use my compression. That you got the answers to my confessions. It's like I'm powerful with a little bit of tender. An emotional sexual bender. Mess me up, yeah, but no one does it better. There's nothing better. That's just the way you make me feel. That's just the way you make me feel. If I'm trying to decrypt a little bit um, how you operate, so there's this research part and, and just making sure that, you know, if you're looking at root causes of, of complex systems that you're sort of targeting the, the right uh, root cause or you're, you're angling your narrative work in the right direction and then it's kind of shaping that narrative in a way that is going to uh, resonate and, and spread and then infiltrating that narrative in, in culture, right? Is that Yeah, is that right? that's, a, that's a good way to talk about culture hacking work in general. Right. Yeah. It is so fundamental and I think like I had prepared a, a list of uh, a few points uh, where we could do a little bit of uh, sort of narrative 101 together uh, to hear you uh, speak a little bit about those, uh, those issues and how the power of words can can help mm-hmm. uh, shape. So we can do this exercise to, uh, together. Um, I wanted to start maybe with, you know, is growth compatible with environmental sustainability, right? There's this right. sort of debate right. between like, oh, yeah. we can maintain capitalism, uh, but just do like, you know, mm-hmm. the green economy mm-hmm. and green growth. Mm-hmm. Like that's a huge narrative that's mm-hmm. very, how do you go about it? Yeah, we've actually done a, a, a meme campaign on, on the idea of green growth, and you can see it on, on the Rules website at, at therules.org and some of the articles that we, we've, we've published on that. But, you know, the, the, the sort of logic is very simple, right? If you have a growth-based economy, your uh, growth needs to exceed your interest rate in order for that money to be paid back. So the pie has to expand, right? Yep. So... The World Bank and IMF and, and most economists and, and the, the will say that you need to grow the global economy at at least 3% per year to not be in stagflation or, or, or deflation. So it, it's sort of the baseline number, you know, 2 to 3%. So if we take the, the 3% number, growing the global economy at 3% a year doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? But... Uh, oh. Sorry, you lost your sound. Testing, testing, testing. Can yeah, you yeah, so yeah. E- even your mic doesn't like growth. <laughs> so you, yeah, there are words you can't say. No, here. exactly, exactly. The, the kind of uh, animate force of, of the, the, the logic of a cancer cell that growth has. <laughs> so, so 3% growth uh, over 20 years is a doubling of the global economy every 20 years. Right. So can you imagine just in the next 20 years doubling our global GDP, which is almost $80 trillion. You know, it's inconceivable. Like, double the amount of Big Macs and short-haul flights and, you know, single-use plastics and and even, you know, nanotechnology research. And it's so exponential. Like, we have no idea where this can go and where this can lead. And it's so deeply problematic that... But it's so embedded into the very core that there's almost no way out of it in, in, in a traditional sense. If you're measuring GDP growth as the, the, the main determinant of, of how healthy an economy is. Right. And so really your only option is a steady state economy or a degrowth economy um, where 
where, you know, money is the only sort of, uh, let's say, commodity that does not, is not affected by natural forces, right? Cattle, grain, well, th- these things decrease in value over time. Right, it's right. just the basic law of entropy. It's the second law of yeah, second law of thermodynamics. Right, it's just a ba- But we we've created these set of rules where money operates as like a phantom, you know, out like impervious to the laws of nature and reality, and is it's sort of this numinous ghost. Right, mm. that that never comes down to earth. It's only in ascension, right? And and so, what happens is, all the things we're seeing, right? You grow a materialist, consumption-based economy ad infinitum. You destroy life on this planet because the logic of capital is if it makes money, you you that's where the resources go. Um, you continue to destroy the ecosystem because it has no economic value or what's worse is you do what a lot of NGOs are doing like the World Wildlife Foundation and try to put a value on those things price nature you know you price nature and then you commodify it in another way and then it gets you know now a price is put on it as opposed to you know not and it's kind of like within that system the only thing you can do is destroy life right? right and so if the alternative is a steady state economy which requires a certain level of maturity the 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 eventual place we would want to get to is a degrowth economy where you're actively you know growing down your 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 economy now so what will happen when you say that is um first of all the idea of degrowth is mimetically and linguistically not a great framing right, right? it's scary. not scary it's scary because, you know, we think of things like, well, as my human body grows or the universe is expanding or, you know, evolution is growth or whatever. But it, it's not, it's, it's um, if you think about another metaphor for this, it's as a human, you, you do not want to be growing at the rate you're growing from the ages of, you know, zero to 17 right. your entire life, right? Or you would explode. So there's a maturity. Actually, what 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 steady state economics is 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 uh, you, you know let's say more of a uh, you know an adolescent uh, economics, and and what degrowth is is really a mature economics, right? And so what you would do is in places that have mature economic environments like Western Europe or North America, you implement degrowth, and you allow so-called developing countries to catch up in material terms. So we're not, you know, trying to get ahead and then, you know, cut the ladder down, which is what a lot of Global South people would say. So it's really getting that balance right. Todo oídos, olfateando aquel desconcertante paisaje nuevo, desconocido. Somos una especie en viaje. No tenemos pertenencias, sino equipaje. Vamos con el polen en el viento. Estamos vivos porque estamos en movimiento Nunca estamos quietos, somos trashumantes Somos padres, hijos, nietos y bisnietos de inmigrantes Es más mío lo que sueño que lo que toco Yo no soy de aquí, pero tú tampoco Yo no soy de aquí Atravesamos desiertos, glaciares, continentes, el mundo entero de extremo a extremo, empecinados, supervivientes, el ojo en el viento y en las corrientes, la mano firme en el remo, 
Cargamos con nuestras guerras, nuestras canciones de cuna, nuestro rumbo hecho de versos, de migraciones, de hambrunas. Y así ha sido desde siempre, desde el infinito. Fuimos la gota de agua viajando en el meteorito. Cruzamos galaxias, vacíos, milenios. Buscábamos oxígeno. Encontramos sueños. So starting now from uh, degrowth, how do how do we address the like how do we fight the narrative battles on on degrowth, especially in regards to jobs and economics, which is what you know politic and politicians and decision makers and people are worried about, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I think on the the in some ways it's not the absence of ideas or alternatives, right? It's We, we have a psychopathic elite that are in power and don't want to lose that power, uh, and they essentially control the media, right? And so, and not essentially, they do c control the media. And, and they are all heavily vested in, um, in fossil fuels, in the extractive economy, um, in agroforestry, And in money in politics, so even you know, of course, the politicians they're they're in power because they're accepting bribes um, that have hijacked our democracy, and you know they can call it whatever they want, right? Campaign support, etc. And so that that's the backdrop. And I think um, you know, mimetically the and and from a narrative perspective, the battle that we're we're fighting is in some ways to make these ideas so obvious and so common sense that uh, they're, they're forced to adopt them, right? And at the same time, they'll do anything they can to not do, you know, we just read a couple of days ago that the U.S. is reframing uh, uh, fossil fuels that come from coal and fracking as, as uh, freedom gas. Right. You know? And in Europe, we buy it. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, and so, so it's, it's, it's become so blatant and so desperate. And so in terms of like what the alternative is, And is it possible? Yeah, I, I think we're going to need a few pioneer countries, the Bhutans, the Costa Ricas, um, you know, maybe even the Canadas, you know, could, could, could pull this off and, and slowly the, the, the bigger nations come. And, you know, look, the, even the nation state at some, at some point is going to have to be dismantled, right? It's an obsolete institution. And at the same time, we need them right now. And, and what most politicians in their day-to-day -day life are faced with is this point you make, which is jobs, right? Right. And so one way to do it is you, you, you'd essentially um, first decouple from GDP as your driver and you'd get a more sane measure like the global, the global progress indicators or, you know, Bhutan has the gross national happiness or whatever. You start measuring something else. Um, the, the second aspect is that uh, you have a very strong uh, sort of social infrastructure, right, where spending and jobs are stimulated and created by, by the state. Now, this is some, you can do it in the old Keynesian way, which I don't think will necessarily work, or you could adopt something like universal basic income. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a UBI is, is increasingly becoming a no-brainer, right, as, you know, it's like 30% of jobs are going to be uh, lost to automation in the next 10, 10, 15 years. As that's happening, as people are needing to find more meaningful work, we're going to have to bring in a universal basic income. Now, there's also, uh, in, in, in the degrowth world, the talk of uh, demiurge currency, which is money that actually follows the law of nature. You know, it's money that uh, is not debt-based, it's not interest-bearing, it decreases in value over time. It could be a tiny amount, you know, it could be uh, you know, a quarter of a percent a year or whatever. But what that kind of money does is it, it, it forces us to not hoard and actually incentivizes us to share. And what's also required is not just policy, but like a value shift. You know, as we said earlier, humans are highly contextual beings. So you can imagine the value shift that would happen when money is not valued for sitting in a Cayman Island bank account, you know, increasing, uh, you know, in, in because of a made up set of rules, right? right? right. Uh, so, so that, that, that would help. And then the other thing you could do with the UBI is you can have a tiered UBI. You know, people who are doing important work in the world uh, could have a slightly higher income for doing that work. For example, uh, indigenous people, right? They 
5% of the world's population, stewarding 80% of the world's biodiversity. Wherever there's indigenous stewardship of land, you have uh, higher quality of water, higher rates of biodiversity, um, higher levels of symbiosis with nature, essentially, and which sequesters carbon, which, you know, in the capitalist world, they will have put value on, but not enforced. Uh, and so uh, we should be paying them for that service instead of, uh, you know, actively taking away their land is to pay them to do what they do just so they can have their basics met because we're all been forced to be in this one globalized super economy, right? Mm. The, the other thing we could do is um, smallholder farmers. So we know that regenerative agriculture, a certain type of agriculture based on, uh, you know, permaculture, uh, multi-strata agroforestry, uh, no-tilling, etc., can reduce uh, carbon from the atmosphere, sequesters it actively sequester. through photosynthesis uh, at huge rates, you know, and, and, and you know, the science is... Uh, you know, in, in battle right now, but, you know, 40% to 80% of our atmospheric carbon could be sequestered in the next 20 years if 80% of the world's smallholders move back to regenerative methods, which they were doing already. Right. Right. But, but you know, the, the Monsantos of the world and the big agra so, uh, sort of forced them out of that, right? So we know it takes about three years to transition from doing monoculture um, to doing polyculture, and we should give them three years of grants to do that. We'd help address climate change to a certain extent, and we'd be funding the world's, you know, the people who are feeding the world, who are also correlated with lower socioeconomic levels, and you'd be helping them. And so you could see how all that would be really required on one level is a change of values to say that actually uh, we're not going to value growth and greed and profit. What we're going to value is ecosystem biodiversity, uh, holding traditional knowledge, um, supporting the people that are most marginalized. And you would have a very different economy, and it's totally possible. Yeah. Uh, and you would have a thriving on this planet. The only thing that stands in our way, though, is that the people who uh, are benefiting from the current system are just not going to want that. You know. To my uh, next point, um Do you envision a possible transition with a non-violent uh, scenario? Or in your mind, does it have to go to some level of, of stress uh, for, for the structures? And, uh, you know, we see the civil, uh, civil disobedience movement really taking off and, and, and people calling for civil disobedience because that's the only tool left in the, in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. What do you think about it? You know, I really believe in like an ecosystem of interventions. We need multiple levels simultaneously. And look, at some level, it's your definition of violence. You know, climate changes and, and um, ecological collapse is a form of violence. Yep. Violence to nature, including us, and will bring... Oh yeah, and exponential uh, violence, right? And and it's it's you know on some level it's inevitable, right? With the the train has left the station and it's happening and it's going to happen right and so do i want you know ecological collapse to to you know create a human dieback and bring us back to some pre-millenarian state no right and yet it's going to happen on on some level and so i think our options are we either create strong local resilient communities and economies now or we try to build that infrastructure post-collapse and it's going to be dystopian yeah and so You know, I think as part of what we were just talking about on the state level, what the state level could do, new measures beyond GDP, universal basic income, um, valuing the work of, you know, key sectors, uh, including indigenous people, uh, caretakers, um, parents, you know, at-home uh, parents, uh, farmers, etc. What we could do at a local level is to, to create strong local economies. And so the role of government should just be to decentralize power, to create these local resilient uh, right. centers that are food sovereign, that have these strong bioregions they're embedded in. And I think if that happens, um, that shift of values will happen simultaneously. So it's like we need resistance and we need renewal. We need to build a post-capitalist transition infrastructure, which includes 
alternative communities and these types of this type of infrastructure, and we need the extinction rebellions and you know all of that simultaneously. And there's probably another level, uh, you know, especially given where we're meeting here, which is we also need to do the the inner work, the the, the spiritual work, the deprogramming work, because. Um, you know, if the world was made in the image of the left, it also wouldn't be that beautiful of a place to live. Mm, right. And just a last point on, on violence. Um, at the narrative level, there are things that we call violence and others that we call, um, that we don't call violence, but there's a profound need to redefine what is violence as well, because ignoring an issue when you're in power and you have the information, the data, and the means to take action. That is violence. Mm -hmm. There's also all the symbolic uh, violence of the world where you know you have this um, um, confrontation of, of different groups where some are really clearly struggling in poverty and so on. And, and two blocks further, you have this you know, amount of, of wealth that is displayed in a way that is in my mind, very violent. I, the, the narrative of violence, I think, is so off, right? Com completely, you know, and, and, you know, Steven Pinker is, is sort of the ultimate embodiment of that, right? He's sort of, um, he's the, the, this logic ad absurdium. So, I don't know if, if people are familiar with Steven Pinker, but I'll he's... I'll link it in the notes. Yeah, yeah. he's a Harvard linguist. Uh, he wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature and, and a new one about... Uh, Uh, the Enlightenment, and you know, he's he's part of the school of people that wants to say everything is getting better. You know, poverty is decreasing, and violence is going down, and you know, look how great we are. And by we, he means you know, white, rational males that are heirs of Enlightenment privilege, right? And therefore, they somehow deserve their jobs and their roles and their status. Uh, and it, it's like. Well, what are you measuring? You know, are you measuring the destruction of old growth forests? Of course not. The destruction of indigenous languages and cultures that are the, the only human connection to, you know, our uh, sort of pre-industrial ancestors who hold the keys to how we could survive post-collapse. They're not measuring that. You know, the, the new types of violence that you talk about, right? If wealth is actually a relative thing and we're all interconnected and we know how little we have in relation to everyone else, there, there's that level of impoverishment has an amplification of violence that is untold. And, and they're also doctoring all of their numbers, you know, taking arbitrary numbers like $1.25 a day is the poverty line to tell the story. And it's not a conspiracy theory. I don't think these people are necessarily... Um, You know, well, maybe Bill Gates, but I, I don't think they're in the, 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 the sort of propaganda business per se, you know, but they, they really believe these things, partly because they are deluded and they are the, the heirs and benefactors of, of, of that system. Oh, tout combat banal, 
talk about this for hours we, we just decided offline that uh, off record that I would come to visit you in Costa Rica so we can uh, powwow and, and sort of well do more episodes of it on, on this topic uh, other narratives that I wanted to sort of get out there but I don't know if we'll have time to cover all of them but you know what's the ROI of the caring economy um, how do we reclaim infrastructure um, uh, I'll, I'll just throw them out there and then I'll, I'll let you jam a little bit mm -hmm. with them but how do we you know we were talking I was with um, Ethan uh, Nadelman uh, a couple of episodes ago who's working um, on, on cannabis legalization in the US and, and we were talking about dynamic, that dynamic that you know The minute it becomes legal, then it's, it gets like sucked in by the, the capitalistic uh, structures and, and corporates. And that's also true with, you know, any kind of edgy cultural movements, street arts, um, anarchism, um, arts in general. Like it's, it starts on the edges and then it, it enters the, the cultural making mm -hmm. machine, right? So there's also this need, this need of reclaiming uh, infrastructure. Um, and one guest um, that we had recently, and uh, the listeners will recognize who I'm talking about, said that, the, well, we should not, you know, evilize the, the profit-making entities and that most of the transition is going to happen uh, through them uh, if we're going to move with uh, like quick enough, mm -hmm. right, so on, on, infra mm -hmm. on, on infrastructure in particular. So, uh, your turn. <laughs> like, how, yeah. how are you thinking around those? So, so you know, we can take a few of these together, right? The idea of like the ROI of the caring economy, or you know, the change is going to come from profit-driven corporations. Like, um, there, there is uh, like a basic lack of understanding from these positions on what's actually happening on the planet. So, for every dollar of wealth created about 93-94 cents ends up in the hands of the top 1%. So by definition, wealth creation creates inequality and poverty. Right. right. On almost every measure, I'd say every measure, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, right? We now have like eight billionaires, all of them who are men, who have the same wealth as the bottom half of humanity, right? And so under no circumstances could more wealth creation change inequality. But if that wasn't bad enough, for every dollar of wealth created, we're heating up our planet because we have a fossil fuel-based extractive economy. And so capital, uh, you know, climate change is not man-made, it's capital-made, right? And so if we think that this current economy with debt-based capital at 3% growth can continue as it is, that's just based on a delusion and a misunderstanding of the basics of physics, right? And so the type of people who say these things are also people who are deeply benefiting from the system, you know? And so, and look, on some level, we're all benefiting from the system, uh, right? On, on some level. And on another level, all of us are impoverished by the system. And so uh, the, the, the question is not, can businesses save the world? It's like, that's not what they're, they're structured to do. Right. right, corporations uh, and any form of, in this current system, debt-based valuation of, 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 of wealth is in the business of destroying the planet. And I'll challenge this a little bit just to clarify, I think, the points that uh, Wade Davis was, was making is probably in regards to, you know, the energy infrastructure, for instance, where we need to very quickly, so on one hand, keep oil in the ground, but also sort of Um, upgrade the grid, um, uh, equip uh, communities around the world with uh, sustainable energy sources, is there uh, a force, a driving force that can achieve this at scale um, 
and at speed, right, at pace, um, other than uh, the corporate energy sector. Yeah, you know, it, it's people, right? And and uh, we could have decentralized community-based power. Like, this is what I was saying with the role of government. If we think the role of government is to subsidize big corporations to solve our problems, well, we tried that experiment for 40 years. It's called right. neoliberalism. It's taken us to the brink of extinction, right? thousand times the baseline rate of species are going extinct every day. We're, right, sixth great extinction. We're in the heat of the Anthropocene, also known as the Kali Yuga, right, the Dark Ages. And so I, I think this is, um, we, we, look, the old generation, that generation um, is not useful to us anymore. Their ideas are not useful to us anymore. It, it sounds harsh, but it, it's true. You know, um, and doesn't mean Wade Davis is not a great anthropologist, but you know he shouldn't be giving economic advice to the next generation, right? So, um, so what you're saying is that um, it's it's about reclaiming the 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 rights to harness the the energy of our local system and and being a co-owner or and a co-developer of a local energy system, as opposed to letting um, you know. A multinational corporate structure or uh, a national player um, put its hands on yeah, the completely, energy. Completely, I, I think you know to, to to bring these ideas together in, into a package is to say uh, localism should be the key priority. Distributed power and wealth at the community level, decision making at the community level, cooperative ownership structures wherever possible, uh, indigenous stewardship of rights. Uh, regenerative agriculture held together by universal basic income so we are paid to do the things we actually want to do uh, in an economy that is degrowing from a material sense um, by small amount and is vastly increasing in its spiritual cultural uh, ecological biodiversity hmm. and it's taking the logic of monoculture and challenging it with polyculture. You know, capitalism's logic can be defined as a monoculture, right? It wants us all to have Apple computers and wear Nike shoes and listen to Miley Cyrus or whatever they listen to. And, and the antidote to that is polyculture. Many ways of being, many ways of knowing, highly localized, highly contextualized solutions and alternatives that are based in distributed local power. And that doesn't mean there isn't a sort of a global sheath that goes over this or travel or interconnectedness. No, of course. We want to synthesize the best aspects of modernity and synthesize the best aspects of uh, our traditional wisdoms and marry them into a system that is better than this. But if we're sitting here celebrating how great our culture is and how great this progress has been, well, we're deluding ourselves. Because the only way we're going to get to the next place is by having a critique of where we are now and knowing how much better it could get. Thanks for sharing your words. Um, it was a very insightful discussion. What, what's next for you with the, the rules? So you're in the last year. We're um, in the last what year. are you looking at right now? You know, I'm just going into the in the not knowing, you know, and going into the prayer of, of how do I be in support of the mother and what's happening on this planet in this collective unfolding, you know, during troubled times. And the question of how to be in best in service, just if you ask the question, I think the answer comes. Yeah. Well, great. I'm looking forward to our follow-up discussion in Costa Rica. Likewise. Thanks for passing by. Great to meet Thank you, Thank you. You too. Thank you. Trying to be perfect for you I'm done jumping
Yeah, I don't 